Well, Valentine's Day has come and gone, so now is the perfect time to go buy that half-priced chocolate. <laughs> Valentine's Day is not a great day for everyone. Charlie Brown goes to the mailbox. Rats not getting any Valentine's is sad. There's only one thing worse, getting your head caught in the mailbox. There is, for all of us, a time in our life when we've been a Charlie Brown. And Charlie Brown is learning the sadness of not giving and we've all experienced the, the, the gladness of receiving and uh, the sadness of not receiving. We've all been told that it is a good thing to give. Every religion seems to be, uh, uh, have that as a theme and has that as a message. A Hindu proverb says, they who give have all things. They who withhold have nothing. It's easy for me to read that and think about, well, if I give money, I'm going to get money. But that's really not what I don't think the spirituality of this proverb really means. I think it's more or less the idea that when I give and when I have a generous spirit that I'm going to receive peace and happiness and a contentment that uh, is beyond and uh, outside of anything financial. The Buddha says this, giving brings happiness at every stage of its expression. We experience joy in forming the intention to be generous. We experience joy in the actual act of giving something. And we experience joy in remembering the fact that we have given. Francis of Assisi, it is said, uh, made this statement, for it is in giving that we receive. And then we read in the New Testament, the Christian scripture. I love that picture of Jesus. He really looked good that day. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Interestingly enough, Paul quotes this verse, but you'll never find that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It's not written any in the four Gospels. And we all know that there are other Gospels out there that didn't make it into the official uh, Christian Scripture. But that doesn't mean at all that those other Gospels are not, are not uh, valuable and spiritually meaningful to us. And I'm not sure where Paul heard Jesus say that, but that's exactly what uh, the message that he gave to us through, through Paul. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And so we're in this series of guilt-free wisdom on money, and we've arrived at the third part in our series where we're going to talk about giving is good. Now you're rolling your eyes. Here we go. Philip is going to hit us with how much we need to give to the venues. It's time for the Sunday morning stick-up. <laughs> a few months ago, people widely condemned a pastor for asking his church to purchase for him a $65 million jet. Although the church did that, I would be happy with a $30 million jet. <laughs> so uh, I'm not ever going to ask you for a $65 million jet. And uh, there are other evangelists and televangelists that have those kinds of jets. Sometimes they'll have a fleet of jets. And it's easy to condemn them for that. And I don't want to get into that line of uh, practice today. Because every Sunday morning, I think there are countless churches who turn the Sunday morning offering into spiritual abuse through pressure and through manipulation. This cartoon says it all. Must I remind you, God is watching. 
Yeah. So if a pastor or a church leader has ever told you that God commands that you give to the church 10% or what the church calls a tithe, then you may be a victim of spiritual financial abuse. If you've ever been to a church where the pastor or the leader has, has taken up multiple offerings in one service, you may be a victim of spiritual financial abuse. Or if the pastor or church leader has ever had you come to the front with your offering, you may have been played. So let's look at this word tithe. It's an old English word that literally does mean a tenth. So a tithe is a tenth of your income. Denise and I were raised in the religious tradition where we were taught that we were supposed to give a tithe, a 10% of our income. And so the moment I began to mow yards in grade school, I would give 10% of those, that, those $2.20 uh, that next Sunday as a tithe. It was just expected to do us to do it. Denise was raised the very same way. And when she and I got married in 1980 and we went to, uh, back to finish seminary, we were to, our combined income was about $500 a month there in 1981 when we went back to seminary. But we'd uh, write that check for $50 and uh, send it to our church. And it was just a part of our life. And, and we never, I don't know, Denise, if we ever felt pressured to tithe, probably a little bit. We just, it was expected to do. And I think there was a, a legitimate reason that she and I did it. Um, first of all, I grew up in a preacher's home, and I knew that my dad was paid because people tithed. So I saw the value of that. Their ties helped me eat when I was growing up. And so I saw the value of that. But when Denise and I began to tithe as a couple, it was kind of a, an act of recognition and gratitude. As I wrote that check out in those days, we'd write our checks for our tithe. As I wrote that check out, it was also an opportunity to just to give a prayer of gratitude. Thanks, God, for the provisions. Uh, it's only $500 a month, but thanks for the provisions. And I recognize that I need to be wise and careful and uh, generous and thoughtful and kind as I spend my money and as we spend our money to be wise and, do, and to do that. But there are other churches, and, and I hope I've not been too guilty of this. I may have as I look at it. But there are some churches that teach and preach the tithe in a way that's very oppressive and manipulative and uh, I think abusive. And the go-to passage for that approach to tithing is the very last book of the Hebrew scripture. It's Malachi and here, here it is. The prophet asked the question, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet, speaking for God, you rob me. Well, you ask, how are we robbing you? And the answer is in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. So bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will, if you tithe, prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe. 
says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. As you read that and listen to it being read, can you see how preachers will, might use that text to pressure people to tithe? What message are you hearing as I read that and as you followed along? What message do you get from that passage? Go ahead and just tell me what you're thinking. A self-serving, meaning maybe that if I give, God's going to give back to me. And so the reason I'm giving is so that I will get. My crops will be bountiful. My bank account will be full. Okay, anything else? If you don't give, you're going to be punished. You'll be cursed. Yeah. Did I hear something on my left side? It's very powerful, isn't it? And if you hear that week after week from a very powerful preacher, you, you, you begin to feel like this is something that I need to do. Uh, and preachers can use this because, really, who wants to rob God? I don't want to rob God, so I guess I better give my 10%. And if you really want to be blessed, you're going to give over 10%. And uh, Denise and I have even been uh, kind of taught to go beyond that throughout our lives. There was one woman who came to her pastor because she was having some financial difficulty. Her refrigerator and her cabinets were bare and her bills were past due. And she asked the pastor a really heartfelt question. Will you, the pastor, will the church, and will God release me from my tithe so I can buy food for my children, so I can pay my bills? And the pastor answered, so... You'd rather rob God. And pay your bills. Another pastor refers to this passage in Malachi as the exchange rate of God. Meaning that when you tithe, God will have no choice but to bless you financially. That by tithing, giving your 10%, you will bind God to the promise that God will then bless you. So if you tithe, you will be blessed. You can take it to the bank. If you don't tithe, you will be cursed. You can take that to the bank as well. So the message uses this weight of, of God to pressure and to manipulate people into giving. And even at times, many times, to give above really what is wise for them to give give to the church, but they're not paying their bills and they're not feeding their family. So let's just take a deep breath and try to understand really what was going on with Malachi and, and the Hebrew people at this time. In the Hebrew world of Malachi and the other prophets, the tithe was basically a tax that the Jewish people paid to keep the temple running and to pay the priest. It was also a tax uh, to support the government because Jewish Judaism was a theocracy. The government and the religious organization were one and the same thing. And so the tithe was a tax. And it wasn't just a 10% tax. If you add up from the Hebrew scripture all that the, uh, the offerings that God required of the Jewish people, it's about 23%. Their tax rate was about 23%. It 
and they were for many different things. A big chunk of that 23% was for an annual party, though. They were supposed to throw a party every year, and so the, uh, about half of that 23% went for party planning. I kind of I like that idea a lot. But is there another way to think about giving to, an, to a charity, including a church, other than oh, Malachi? Other than these, maybe these promises or these fear tactics. Uh, because honestly, when a preacher asks you to tithe like that, it's not an act of generosity that you are practicing. You're not giving because of generosity. You're giving because you're scared. And you're being forced and you're being manipulated. So there's got to be maybe a better way of doing this. The Apostle Paul, who was raised a Jew, and he was a Pharisee himself, says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. So that kind of sounds a little bit like Malachi. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. But then he says this, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. So there's no fixed number in Paul's mind. You just give to a charity what you want to give. But not reluctantly or under compulsion. And that word reluctantly literally means grief. Uh, don't give as if, oh my gosh, I'm giving this and I'm sad about it. And it's like somebody has died and I'm grieving over parting ways with my money here. No, don't give like that. Don't give like you're under compulsion, like you're being forced to, because God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So there is something to that Malachi thing that as we are generous with our whatever we have then there's a principle in the universe that the universe will give you back so maybe does it work like this maybe if i feel low on love if i give more love maybe i'll receive more love if i feel like the world is unkind to me maybe if i give more kindness into this universe maybe the universe will give back there seems to be a principle that kind of runs through the Hebrew thinking, the Christian thinking, and even the Buddhist thinking, and the Hindu thinking as well. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. What I hear Paul saying there is because when I hear a prosperity preacher, and the prosperity preacher is kind of a name that is sometimes given to preachers who teach that if you give 10%, then God's going to return 20% to you. You'll get double. But it is usually so that we can go buy a bigger house or a second home or a nicer car or go on an expensive vacation. But Paul kind of twists that around. He says, no, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Not that your bank account will be fuller, but the more that you get, the more you'll be able to give to people in need. And then it goes back to the Proverbs, to the poor. 
So there is this economy that I think the universe has put into place that we give, and when we give, we're more likely to receive so we can give again. It just goes right through our hands. We give it out, it comes in, and we give it right back out. Not to keep it in the bank, not so we'll get richer, but so we can do more good in this world. And so tithing, the way it typically has been taught, is really not you being generous. It's you being scared. It's you feeling guilty. It's you feeling forced and manipulated. The Dalai Lama, I think, expresses a really good way to think about giving. Generosity is the most natural outward expression of an inner attitude of compassion and loving kindness. So I know that when I'm grounded in love and when you're grounded in love and when there's a heart of compassion and kindness that's being allowed to express itself, we're going to be generous. It's just a natural uh, behavior of a person who has a compassionate and a kind and loving heart. So generosity is good. Uh, generosity is good for the person who gets it, and it's good for the person who gives. Denise and I have been beneficiaries of people's generosity. We have been given opportunities to stay in a condo in the Rocky Mountains or a condo uh, in the, uh, on, on the coast somewhere, our honeymoon was provided to us by George Muncie. I worked for Mr. Muncie at Muncie Toasters in Little Rock uh, for about eight years every summer through high school and college. And as a wedding present, he gave us his uh, home uh, in Pensacola for a, a honeymoon. So we kind of started off this idea of uh, how generous people are. And honestly, it felt really good to be given those gifts. But the studies show this. Charlie Brown would have been happier giving a Valentine card than receiving a Valentine card. Study after study shows that, the, that the, the road to happiness always goes through the towns of generosity. In fact, one study said this. High generosity people are 3 or 23% more likely to be satisfied with their lives overall. They're happier in their relationships, their jobs, and even more than that. In one experiment, the researchers took 700 people and they gave them some money. And they said to one part of the 700, go and buy something with this money for yourself. To the other part of the 700, go and buy something for someone else. And then they all reported back and through a series of scientific studies and, and evaluation and analysis, they discovered that one group was happier than the other group. One group got a bigger buzz than the other group. Can you guess which group got the bigger high? It was the people that gave. They registered a higher buzz than the group that bought something for themselves. So giving is good. Maya Angelou says, I've learned that you should not go through life with a catcher's mitt on both hands. You need to be able to throw something back. So this kid was in the ballpark, uh, major ballpark. I'm about ready for uh, baseball season to come back, so this will give us a little taste of it. But watch what happens when this kid uh, gets a foul ball. Take a look. 
that outside pitch, especially when he gets two strikes. Yeah, the breaking ball has really been his kryptonite, especially from the right hand. As soon as he learns to recognize that pitch a little bit earlier. See that kid there in the pink glasses? Earlier in the game, Luis Rivera throws him a baseball. Now watch what he does. He catches that baseball and then turns to the group of young ladies behind him and said, hey, ladies, would you like a ball? But and they go, oh, aren't you so sweet? But then he says, I gave her the other ball. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is yeah. he's got the gamer in yeah. his glove. He's, he never took the gamer out of his glove. It's just, ladies, would you like a baseball? And look at the girl in the middle. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> it's not the game ball. Pretty slick. <laughs> that is the play of the game. <laughs> Boy, I've got to watch out for that kid. I think the uh, Hebrew prophets are going to have something to say about, about him when he gets older. Speaking of kids, when Denise and I were raising Daniel and Devin, we were taught, and we really did try to do this, that we were to catch Daniel and Devin doing something good and then praising that performance to try to reinforce that performance. So if uh, Devin shared a toy with Daniel, we would, uh, you know, praise that performance and say, and, uh, yeah, thank you so very much you, uh, you, for, for sharing that toy uh, with your brother and uh, and it what that does it, it does have the idea of reinforcing that behavior so that there will be praised and um, that was so generous of you or that or that was so kind to do but now research shows that it is more powerful to praise a kid's character than it is to praise the performance the behavior so instead of saying Thank you for giving. We're being told now to say, thank you for being a giver. Instead of saying, oh, wow, that was so helpful. Say, oh, wow, you were so helpful. And what happens when we focus on the character instead of the behavior, the, the science says this. The kid starts to internalize that character trait into their identity. So if we let them know that in their hearts they are good, they are kind, they are giving people, then when they have an opportunity to be kind, to share something, to, to be a helper, then they're going to be more likely to do that because they're going to say, well, yeah, that's who I am. I am kind. I am a giver. I am a selfless person. So they have the opportunity to actually do that because this is who I am. There is even evidence that with toddlers as young as three years old, instead of asking them, will you help? You ask them, will you be a helper? Focusing on the character, not the behavior. And if we focus on the character, not the behavior, this study shows that that kid's going to be 29% more likely to actually help out. We want that identity as being a helper, of being a kind person, of being a good person. But if you grew up in the religious tradition that Denise and I grew up in, we were never taught that we were good. Now, we might do some good things, but we were never taught as children that we were good kids. We were taught that we were bad kids. 
who every once in a while do something good. Every once in a while can do something kind. But in our hearts, they were, black, were, were evil, and they were uh, bad, and they were depraved even. And so we weren't good. We needed someone from the outside to make us good. And that was what all of salvation was all about. We were saved because we were bad and we needed to be made good. But I'm just wondering, I want you to think about this with me. Is it possible that we really were made good? And that our true identity is good, our true identity is kind, our true identity is loving. And that salvation is not going from bad to good. Salvation is wholeness, which is what the word actually means. Wholeness in is realizing it is waking up to the fact that I am good, I am kind, I am beautiful. God did create me good. And now that I awakened to that, I realized that. And I live that out in my very own life. You know how much I love Father Roar. And just take a moment and think about this. It's kind of long, so bear with us. Father Roar says, It is good to remember that a part of you has always loved God. There is a part of you that has always said yes. There is a part of you that is love itself, and that is what we must fall into. Maybe that's what salvation is, falling into our true identity. It is already there. Once you move your identity to that level of deep inner contentment, you will realize that you are drawing upon a life that is much larger than your own and from a deeper abundance. Once you learn this, why would you ever again settle for scarcity in your life? I'm not enough. This is not enough. I do not have enough. I'm afraid this is the way culture trains you to think. It's the way the church trained me to think anyway. It's kind of a learned helplessness. The gospel message is just the opposite. Inherent power. You have power within you. You have enough within you. You are enough. Yeah. I like what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians in that same passage. God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. Again, the gifts from God come to us not to fatten our bank account. It's just so we can keep doing good in, in the world. Keep doing good to make this world more loving. This word, uh, where did it go? Oh, overflow. One of the uh, Greek uh, scholars that I read often uh, translated that Greek word overflow as cram. God just crams it in you. Does anybody else have a junk drawer at their house? And how many things can we cram into that junk drawer? I told you a couple of weeks ago about my sock drawer. It is crammed full of socks. It really is. One thing I love about my dad, and I think about this periodically, he, he would go to, uh, on his way from Little Rock to Springfield to see us. They would always stop at McDonald's and Harrison. And uh, he got to know the people behind the counter uh, by name. 
And he would ask, always ask them, I'd love to see just how high you could fill that ice cream cone. <laughs> and uh, he would offer the challenge, and they would just get the leaning tower of ice cream, but just cram full. And that's, that's how Dad ate. That's how I ate. Uh, he'd mix up his peanut butter and honey to go on his toast, and I promise he'd squeeze half of that bear uh, out and uh, fill up, and i just kind of do the same thing. And Denise is looking at me right now saying, don't talk about your dad because you're the same way. <laughs> and I, but I think that's just, that's, that's what it is, just a cram full. And I want you to know that you're just crammed full of love. You're just crammed full of goodness. That God's grace in your life is just overflowing right now. It's just oozing out of you. And I think I need to be saved every day because I need to be awakened to the fact that God is good in me and grace is filling me and I am just absolutely crammed full of kindness and love. Paul writes to the Ephesians, I pray that out of God's glorious riches, she may strengthen you with power through, through her spirit in your inner being. See, it, it comes from compassion, not forced generosity, but if we would understand that within our inner being is there is compassion and there is kindness so that Christ may dwell. And that word dwell means to be at home with. That Christ may settle into your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this, Love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be, ah, there's that word there, crammed to the measure of all the fullness of God. I want you to awaken to the fact that all that God is, is crammed into your heart. All of his kindness, all of his goodness, all of her generosity, all of her love is just crammed into you right there. And if you cry, you cry love. You breathe, you breathe out kindness because it's just filled up with you. And out of that recognition that I am filled with love, I'm going to be generous with no force, no manipulation. I want to close with this video of, of a guy who uh, just shows how powerful gratitude can be and how powerful generosity can be. Take a look at what this guy does to this other fellow. Excuse me, sir. Yep, you got a couple bucks by any chance to get an apple? Well, normal. Oh, thank you so much. What's your name? Donovan. Donovan? I'm Zachary, nice to meet you. Good day, Jack. Nice to meet you, too. You study here? Yep. What do you study? Disability studies. Is this the school computers? Not mine. Does it work well? No. <laughs> What's wrong with 12 it? 12 years old. It's gotta be hard to do schoolwork on it. It is. I use this. Oh, the mouse. Because like my shoulders are both shoulders are damaged. Oh. So all What'd you do to your shoulders? Uh, I was shipwrecked. Shipwrecked? Yeah. Why'd you help me today? Why? Yeah. Why not? When possible, I like to do random acts of kindness. Me too. Sometimes these little acts of kindness have some pretty big ripples from time to time. I don't actually need an orange today. But that's okay. You're still welcome to have that. Thank you. I won't actually give you the orange back. Okay. Thank you. 
and I wanted to give you an apple instead. Apples are a little harder for me to eat. I don't have any teeth, <laughs> courtesy of the shipwreck. Well, I got a different type of apple for you. <laughs> because you were kind to me, I got a brand new MacBook for you. Oh, class. Brand new. I am astonished. Thank you very, very much. Love you, Donovan. This has nothing to do with my message, but I feel like they just kind of skipped over the shipwreck story. <laughs> I'd love to hear more about that. And I don't know this guy, the old guy or the young guy. I don't know what their faith is, if they even have a faith, as far as how we define it. I just know those people are human. And there was in them generosity and kindness and care. And I think that every human being has that within them. And what we are doing as a church, as a community, is trying to help people awaken who they really are. And out of that, share their apple. Yeah. To the degree, whether it's an apple from Mama Jean's or an apple from Best Buy. Whatever it is.